Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 169. Today we'll conclude the interview with Hod Lipson, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Columbia University, where he directs the Creative Machines Lab, which pioneers new ways to make machines that create and machines that are creative. He received both DARPA and NSF faculty awards, as well as being named Esquire magazine's best and brightest and one of Forbes' top seven data scientists in the world. His TED talk on building robots that are self-aware is one of the most viewed on AI, and in January 2023, he was centrally featured by the New York Times in their piece, What's Ahead for AI? He's co-author of the award-winning books, Fabricated, The New World of 3D Printing, and Driverless, Intelligent Cars and the Road Ahead. Last week, we talked about the state of the art in robotics, how robotics is advancing, and its relationship to AI advances, and how we judge robot abilities unfairly. Hard has a very expansive vision of robots, where he sees them accomplishing so much more than what they can do now that he's already thinking about issues like self-awareness and sentience for robots. Let's get back into the interview with Hod Lipson and pick it up where he's talking about the potential for future robots to repair themselves. So actually, biological life spent a lot more time solving the energy problem and the material repair problem long before it dealt with intelligence. Now, we did the easy part first, which is intelligence. I think intelligence is the easy part compared to solving the energy problem and compared to solving the repair, the self-repair and healing. So that's another thing that has to happen. I can say that in our lab, we're working on a project called machine metabolism, which is the idea that, you know, can a robot walk up to another robot and eat it? Basically use its parts to improve itself. Just like we walk up to a chicken and we use the chicken proteins to improve ourselves and to repair ourselves. So biology is all about recycling. Animals eat animals, we eat plants, plants eat us, we consume each other's material and recycle material all the time because we're all made of the same 20 amino acids and it's all designed in a very recyclable way. Machines can't do that yet, but we and a couple other groups are working on designing robots that are not just a monolithic machine that is built by a human and works for a few years and then breaks down or requires a human to crawl around and fix it, but actually machines that can self-repair they can use parts, they can repair each other, they can use parts from other robots to repair themselves. And when we get to that point, that ecosystem, that ecology of robots that can take care of themselves, then and only then robots can take off. But right now, we figured out the brain, but we haven't figured out the body, not the energy, not the material. And these are two things that need to happen. You know, again, I don't know, again, if it's going to take five years or 50 years. It's very difficult to put a timestamp on these things, but that's a tall order mm -hmm. that will take us time to figure out. 
I get that. Just so that I have my visualizations straight, you've introduced me to a new concept here. And so that our listeners have something concrete to visualize, tell us about this robot cannibal that you've got or are developing and just the extent of what it can do right now before we visit the where it yeah. might be in the future. I think the best way to imagine what a robot ecology looks like, where machines can self-repair and consume each other and so on and repair each other, think about a world where robots are made of Lego bricks, of maybe not infinite supply of a variety of Lego bricks, but maybe 20 or so Lego bricks, like we humans are made of 20 amino acids. And those Lego bricks are carefully selected that with them, you can create a lot of different things. But once you think of robots as only made of those Lego bricks, it's suddenly not difficult to imagine how a robot can repair another robot, Hmm. how a robot can take apart another robot and use its parts to improve itself. Our robots can improve each other. Our robots can adapt to new situations. It actually becomes child's play. And this is exactly what biology has done with humans, except that the Lego bricks are very, very tiny with robots. I don't know what these Lego bricks are going to look like. They're going to be small, but not that small. You know, we're working with tiny bricks that are about the size of one or two millimeter cubed. But these little cubes can have, some of them can be hard, some of them can be soft, some of them can be conductive, some of them can be non-conductive, some can have microprocessors on them, some can have batteries on them. But if we have a relatively finite repertoire of these building blocks, Mm. robots can start making other robots, building them, repairing, adapting. And you see, the more we depend on robots for our life, and we're doing that whether we like it or not, our supply chains, smart cars, smart cities, smartphones, the more we surrender our life to machines, we want those machines to be self-reliant. We want them to be able to fix themselves. We want them to be able to repair, to improve. We can't be maintaining all these robots ourselves indefinitely. Are robots at the moment too bespoke in their construction? Would the development of robotics be accelerated if we had more interchangeable parts? Absolutely. Robots today are, I don't know what the equivalent in software. It's like the era where every computer was different and Mm. every language was different and nothing was interchangeable. And so in a way, it's very efficient because everything is optimized for its target, but nothing's interchangeable, nothing's recyclable. You cannot recycle a robot except maybe some metal parts. Robots have very short lifespans for many reasons. They really live only for two or three years before they have to be recycled. And so we're really, really at the very, very beginning of creating a sort of an ecosystem, which we've done really well for software by developing languages and modules and standards that allow us to interchange things. But even there, only recently, only in the last year, you've got computer code that can write better computer code. So self-repairing code is still doesn't exist even in software, or at least it's hard to find, but that's the path. It's inevitable. Mm. You've written and talked about self-replicating robots. Is that the same as what we've just been talking about? Or are you envisaging robots that can build multiple other robots so that there could be a, an exponential factor? Yeah, so I've done work on self-replicating robots. Self-replication is maybe 
the uh, ultimate form of self-repair, if you like. This is for me a very, it was a sort of a holy grail, uh, something that I, again, in that alchemist vision, one of the things that people always told me that the biggest differentiator between biological life and artificial life, robots, is that biological life can reproduce and machines can't. And the moment I heard that, I said, okay, well, that's a very concrete goal. Let's see if we can do that. And we built very primitive machines that can build copies of themselves given material and energy. Rabbits also need material and energy to reproduce. So robots also need that. But I think self-replication is one perhaps extreme example, but self-repair, self-adaptation, growth and development, the fact that we humans, we grow by consuming materials and we become bigger and stronger is important in how we learn to do things. We don't immediately have all the power we want. We grow and we gradually sort of earn it. Robots will, I think, there's many reasons why we want robots to sort of go mm. through that process as well. And I think it's going to happen. Then we're talking about humanoid robots. They're obviously much easier to create, to understand how they work, to drive them remotely. But also kind of pointless in that if you build a humanoid robot, it can only do what a human does, more or less, and we all already have a way of doing that. So it would make more sense to develop robots in completely different forms that could do things that we can't. What sort of future do you envisage in terms of what the robots will be doing for us? Yeah, well, I think there's going to be many different robots, all shapes and sizes, different abilities, and different capacities and goals. And it's really helpful to think about it as an ecosystem of robotics. There'll be robots whose entire purpose is to fix other robots. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of, you know, an ecosystem. And a piece of that are going to be humanoid robots. And I think that's very important because it's easiest for us humans to perhaps interact with another uh, robot that looks like a human and can do things that humans can do simply because it's the least mental effort. It's easiest to project yourself. It's easiest to take the same techniques they use to communicate with other humans and same tools that other humans use and now just shift them and ask your robot helper to pick up the broom and use it and do something. It's just a lot easier. So I can see that in the short term, and from a sort of perhaps marketing from a business point of view, it's a very good path to go initially. Mm -hmm. But in the long term, if you're making a robot that repairs other robots, there's no reason to make that look like a human. If you're making a robot that is, I don't know, cleaning ships from barnacles, there is no reason to make that a humanoid robot. If you look at early science fiction uh, movies where there's a there's a robot driving a car, all right, sitting in a car, grabbing the steering wheel and driving the car. But there's no reason to make a self-driving car mm -hmm. look like a human. It mm -hmm. doesn't need any of that. So I think that's our initial first step. But we're going to see a whole range of different machines of all shapes and sizes. So you could see something like a WALL-E future where there's robots that are designed to pick over landfills and separate out recyclables exactly. in a way that would be far too boring for us. Exactly. You've also talked about a future where robots are sentient. What would be the consequences of a robot doing that that was sentient? Would it get bored out of its mind and seek revenge? Yeah, so, you know, that's a good question. This is sort of a curse that, you know, if you make things too intelligent, you start building in unintended consequences. 
including pain and suffering. And this is, you know, something that we have to think about. And this is part of our journey is to think about how we build intelligence into things. Do we want to build super intelligence into everything? Or maybe we want some machines to be not self-aware so that they can just do their thing uh, without having to think about it. I know it sounds, a lot of people, listeners are probably thinking this is completely crazy and this is never going to happen. It is going to happen and it is within reach. And just like we've seen large language models do incredible things that were thought impossible a year ago, machines that begin to have their own, I don't want to say free will, but their own sort of position and thoughts about certain things is inevitable. It is part and parcel of being intelligent, is being able to have opinions about things. And I think that is going to happen. And we're going to have to make some tough decisions about maybe we want our car not to be intelligent. And we're going to build it that way. Well, we're on the same wavelength. And I think the listeners to this podcast will have more understanding than most of what you've just been talking about, because I recently released a TEDx talk where the theme was that at some point in the future, we will have to confront making AI sentient if we want to coexist with it. So I I completely understand where you're coming from there. And huge issues that have probably more psychological, sociological challenges than technical ones. You have to get people on board with this. We were talking before we started the recording about education and large language models. You're a teaching professor, and so your world has been impacted by large language models that can do things on standardized tests. Well, at least to some extent. And can you talk about what that has been like for you and your philosophy of where you're going to take that? Yeah, so, you know, the world of education, I think, has been uh, rattled by these large language models in many ways. And I think on one hand, the thing that I think people need to understand is that this is just the beginning. So it's not a question of ban this or ban that. This is just the beginning. It's only going to get more sophisticated, more capable. Large language models are going to be intertwined in our life in ways that we can't even imagine right now. They're going to be in our phones and in our thoughts and inside and out. We're going to have our private language models that are experience the world with us and we can't live without. There's going to be much deeper than just some chat GPT-4 that's on the web that you can turn off if you don't like. So we have got to learn and teach how to live in a world where these things are ubiquitous. We have to teach next generations how to use this. We have to teach next generation how not to fall into traps that will become available with this thing. And we can talk about those. And this is our goal as educators, is to sort of not just hide from this, but to embrace it, learn how to use it, learn how to do new things with it, but also be careful of how we use it. I'll give you a quick example. I teach a class in robotics, intro to robotics, where students design robots and then build them and then program them and do machine learning from A to Z in one semester. The robots walk out of the room at the end of that semester. And that's the project. And, you know, when I taught this class two or three years ago, the students came up with the concepts on their own. Now I say, you can come up with a concept of your own, but I want you also to go to some of these new 
AI design tools. Some of them are making their way into engineering so they can generate concepts. They can design robot parts for you. They can help you imagine what this robot can do. And you have to learn to use this too. You have to use these tools to augment your engineering ability. It's not a question of hiding away from these tools. The question is, can you do more if you use these tools? And this is the mindset that we have to have is whatever you want to do, you can do it better if you understand how to use these tools. And this has to be our mantra as educators is to embrace this and help people do more. The other thing I quickly want to say is in a broader sense, I think we have to think a little bit about what I call AI literacy. So the question is, how do we allow people who are not technical people, who are not versed with robotics or coding or AI, people who don't think they can do any of this, how we can say, look, this is a technology that's going to permeate anything you do. You have to not learn how to code AI, but you have to understand how it works, what it can and cannot do, and how to use it to do whatever you want to do better. If you're a journalist, you can be a better journalist if you understand AI. If you're a historian, if you're an economist, if you're a policymaker, you need to understand how AI works, what it can and cannot do in order to make a better world. And this is where we educators, this is, we have to learn how to do this because if we don't do this, the world is going to sort of recoil from AI Mm. and say, this is too dangerous. We don't want to do this. We're going to shut this down. So in order to be able to harness all these benefits, we have to work on this AI literacy. This is the reason I'm here today. I'm on this crusade to help people see the opportunity rather than the stress and the risk. It's very easy to see the risks, but I want people to understand there's huge opportunities on the table. Mm-hmm. We got to embrace this. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be perilous, but we got to do this and we got to take this by the horn. And, you know, I want to use the cliche here, steer, don't fear. Mm. All right. Let's drive this in the right direction rather than say, we can't do this. We're going to ban it and close our eyes. Is there some background there of interactions with other departments? Yours is by definition forward-looking. You're creating the future. You're as progressive as anyone gets about this. If we were to look at humanities departments, for instance, Department of History, for instance, that have not had to evolve. Higher education has got something of a reputation for not evolving quickly in response to disruption, and yet they are impacted by the ability of these models to craft responses to tests as much as anyone. Have you had visibility into how the less evolved parts of higher education are dealing with this and are they going to evolve or are they going to crash and burn? Are they going to come kicking and screaming to the new age or are they embracing it? I've seen a mix of reactions. I have to say some, I, you know, I've been invited to speak about these topics in the school of journalism. So some faculty in journalism, for example, at Columbia are, I don't want to say excited about this, but at least understand that this is going to change journalism for better and for worse, right? It creates fake news on one hand, it's at enormous capacity, but it also allows investigative reporting in depth that couldn't be accomplished by a single reporter to date. So, you know, that's definitely going to change the way that journalism works, and they understand that. 
but some faculty don't and they are just interested in their own thing and it could be a generational thing that some faculty will uh, retire and a new faculty will come on board with a different point of view so it, it could be just a the time cycle, the life cycle of academia will take care of this. At least that's my hope. Mm. But also in engineering, I would say you see a little bit more of a whatever works attitude. Mm -hmm. You know, so if I need to design better, I don't know, proteins in a biomedical situations and an AI can design proteins for me, I'm not going to ban it. I'm going to use it right. to design better proteins, better antennas, whatever I need to do. So there's a little bit more of a acceptance, even though engineers could say, I'm an antenna designer. I don't want this AI to design antennas and eat my lunch. Hmm. And they could go on strike, the antenna designers, and say, you have to ban all the antenna designing AIs, you know, could happen. But what you're seeing is the opposite. They're saying, how can I get more of this? How can I build the AI into my computer design software so that I can design better mm. things? So I think engineering is a little bit more open to this, but I think eventually academia, it's going to be uh, either embrace or perish. This is, there's no way around this. I think pretty much an operational definition of engineering is do whatever works. I like that one. When we were talking before the recording started, you said something that really caught my ear, that we need to educate the chat GPTs of the world, that that's a mission for us. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I had this experience recently where I asked chat GPT a specific question about a technical topic just to kind of test it on something. And it got an answer that was sort of incorrect. And, you know, that's not by itself a big deal. But then I, I was wondering where it got that from. And it turns out, I, a little bit of Googling, and found out that that's what was on Wikipedia. That particular piece of information, it got from Wikipedia. And the, the insight here is that ChatGPT is not magic. It's not doing its own research. It's learning from what's out there. And if there's wrong things out there, then it knows the wrong things. And so part of what we should do as academics, and anybody who's creating knowledge, it's not just about teaching people, but it's also about teaching AI so that this AI can amplify and give the correct answer to whoever's asking it. In a way, teaching the AI is more important than teaching people because the AI will have so much more impact. The AI answers thousands of questions a second. And if I can get the AI to answer correctly, I'm going to have a huge impact. If the AI answers incorrectly, mm. it's going to have a huge detrimental effect. So we have to actually make an effort to disseminate our findings, our knowledge, multiple viewpoints, everything that we want to share, we want to make sure that is available to the AI. Mm. And I'm seeing a little bit of the opposite thrust in academia and some other places where people say, this is my knowledge, I don't want to share it with the AI. There's an anti-sharing philosophy, if you like, where people want to withhold information from the AI because it's theirs. And I think actually what we want to do is the other way around. We want to make the knowledge that's maybe buried in old textbooks that haven't been digitized or experiments that have not been published or uh, word of mouth has never been recorded. Take all that information and make that available to AI. This is completely new thing, role for academia. We've only been engaged with teaching humans, current and next generations of humans. Now we have to teach machines. But I think the impact is going to be far greater if we can teach machines 
in terms of scalability than just teaching people one by one. Uh, that's very thought-provoking. The large language models being essentially autocomplete functions, like what's the most likely word to come next at any given point, don't inherently, as part of that architecture, have the concept of a fact, let alone truth or falsehood. They're just saying what's the most likely thing to come next based on this trillion words that they've ingested. And it's only because most of that has been true that its output tends to be true. So we really have an obligation to feed it as much truth as possible so that that becomes its most likely output. Right. And part of it is also feeding it uncertainty where mm. uncertainty exists. If there are three viewpoints, three theories about something, then they should all be out there, not just two of them. And the right. third one doesn't exist because we want the AI to say, well, there's, we're not sure right. about this dark matter. Maybe there's five different theories about it or whatever. Right. And I think that's also is going to be important when we reach, there's another thing which is brewing is knowledge discovery is going to be done by machines increasingly. And so the scientific process, the coming up with hypotheses about what's possible is going to be, I think, increasingly handed over to machines. We human scientists can only come up with so many hypotheses in our head. We can only embrace so many contradictions at a time, but a machine can do a lot better than that. And we're already seeing that in small scale. Mm. And so the whole process of discovering knowledge is going to be if not handed over, at least assisted greatly by machines. And we want them to start with as much information as we've already discovered so they can move forward faster and, and also align themselves with what we already know. Mm. If you have an AI scientist and it already understands how physicists describe the world, it can describe its findings in the same language as physicists mm. describe it today. And it's going to be easier for us humans to keep pace with the AI. So for many reasons, we want the AI to understand what we understand today to the best of our ability. Do you find people who find that projection, that vision threatening? Do you have any words for them of optimism or reassurance about how this will be a good thing because we do tend to put negative spin right. on things and you're talking about some very life-changing right. scenarios. There's definitely a threat of inherent and loss of control, right? So the moment you allow machines to make discoveries, to explain them and see the world in ways we can't understand or can't perceive, there's a loss of control. But the benefits of having machines that can invent new things and go places we can't go, I think outweigh that loss. And if I have to sort of think hard about it, a lot of what I know about the world, I never experienced myself. I don't really know what's out there in the cosmos. I don't know what the solar system... I've just read about the, you know, the solar system. Sounds good to me. I have saw pictures, I saw artist renditions. And I've never experienced it myself. I haven't been to the bottom of the sea. I've never seen half of the animal species I've seen in pictures. So I experience the world, we humans. A lot of what we experience is through words and descriptions of other humans. And so we already lost that control, if you like. We already experienced the world and gain knowledge through other entities and not directly. This is the main difference, I would say, that we have from our 
chimp ancestors and animals before that, that we experience the world in ways much grander than our immediate daily experience because we can work through language and through other beings. And we are just going to expand it. This is just an expansion of that ability. This is why I think it's actually, we're going to be very comfortable with this. We are very good at it. We already do this and we're just going to do more of it. And the metaphor I have in my mind that helps me cope with this is think about the distance between primitive stone tools that human invented 50,000 years ago to the tools we have today, which are computers, microchips, mRNA vaccines, satellites. Think about the distance. If you took any of those three things, satellites, mRNA vaccines, or computer chips, and show them to our ancestors 50 thousand years ago, sitting in a cave and tell them, uh, this is a tool, just like your hammer, this is a tool. There is no way they could even understand the goal of these tools. They're useful, let alone how they work. The gap is so huge. And it took 50,000 years to get there. That's all, 50,000 years. We're going to go the same distance as those stone tools to satellites Mm. in the next 50 years. Okay, instead of 50,000, we're going to do that in 50 years. But just imagine how far we can go. That distance, that huge distance from stone tools to satellites, that is the distance we're going to go in the next 50 years. I mean, how can anybody resist that? Mm -hmm. I mean, how can you not open that box? I mean, we have to see what's out there. Mm -hmm. We have so many problems right now that we can't solve, and we're going to be able to address them. So I'm very optimistic. Mm. Those satellites and microchips have improved life to no end compared to the life of our ancestors 50,000 years ago. And the same thing is going to happen now. And I think that's what communicates that positive future better than anything is being in your company and hearing this, seeing you, the way that you talk about it, because it communicates so much more than the text ever could about how you envision this being positive. So just to approach some conclusion here, if I could wave a wand and transport you 10 years into the future. Now, I know our crystal balls are not good enough to know what the robots look like at that point. So I'm not asking you to predict that sort of thing. But if the best case scenario has happened by that point, what would you like to be true about the way that humans and robots and AI are coexisting at that point? Well, what I hope will happen, I think that we will start to see robots that can do trivial things, what we call trivial but are not, like manipulation and locomotion and do things around the house and and help with elder care and things that are difficult for us humans or the things we don't want to do and but need to be done and that we can communicate with them with language, what I hope will happen is that people will start shifting their perspective from stress to opportunity. That's really Mm. what this is all about. Right now, everybody's stressed about this. Stressed in many different ways. Existential stress, economic stress, educational stress. What should we learn? What should we do? What should my, my children learn, you know, jobs, things like that. So we shift our stress to see all the opportunities because as long as there are problems, there are jobs, there are problems to solve. We can learn to harness this AI to solve problems. And that shift, I think, is what needs to happen. 
the one thing I don't want to happen, and some people predict this might happen, is that only a small section of the population learns how to use the AI, and the other 99% are just remain AI illiterate and cannot keep pace with it. This is why I'm on this crusade to explain AI, to shift people's mind, because if people recoil from this, they're going to be left behind. You can't opt out of AI. No more than you can opt out of electricity or of communication. I mean, we use it all the time. You're going to be using it, going on the ride, whether you want it or not. The question is, are you going to steer it? Are you going to lead it? Are you going to be dragged along? So I want more people to be able to steer this, determine where it's going to go, make sure it's used the right way because it could be misused. And that's one of the big fears. Not the AI taking over the world, but misused by bad people want to do bad things using AI. So the more we understand how it works, the more we can steer this and make it do good things. This is where I hope we'll be in 10 years. Well, thank you so much. You have just articulated the same reasons that I'm doing this and people who've listened to other shows of this podcast know that this is my mission. I love the ways that you have uniquely phrased that and I feel the strong kinship with you in terms of what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I understand completely why it's necessary and, and so important. So I thank you. Where should people go to find out more about what you're doing and what you want them to know and what's important? Well, probably if you're interested in specific things that we're doing, creativemachineslab.com. That's where our research lab is, where we publish all of our papers and all of our thoughts. That's a good place to start. But really, I think the most important thing is to sort of read, hear more about AI and just not fear it, really. It's a huge opportunity around the corner. Oh, and thank you so much, Hard Lipson, for coming on the show and giving us the benefit of your passion and your vision. Thank you for the opportunity. That's the end of the interview. You know, when I wrote my last TEDx talk a year ago, and it was recorded at the beginning of this year, and it was released a couple of months ago, I thought I was going out on a very speculative limb in talking about AI becoming sentient and the need for it to have empathy, and didn't attach any timelines to my predictions. I could practically hear the ridicule from orthodox computer science brewing as I spoke. And yet here's Hard, a professor who builds robots and teaches robotics, going right there. I think that a lot of people had always had these thoughts, but weren't very vocal about them because the public narrative wasn't friendly to them. But that's shifting, and now we can have these conversations more, and Hard, who's always been talking about this sort of thing, gets more traction. I also found it very useful to get Hod's current take on ChatGPT and its friends from right inside academia and post-secondary education, and particularly his ideas about how we, and that means you and me as well, will teach those models. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, a study at the University of Zurich found that disinformation generated by AI may be more convincing than disinformation written by humans. The study, published in Science Advances, found that people were 3% less likely to spot false tweets generated by AI than those written by humans. Lead researcher Giovanni Spitali said, Quote, the fact that AI-generated disinformation is not only cheaper and faster, but also more effective, gives me nightmares. End quote. Right with you, Giovanni. Right with you. 
The researchers chose common disinformation topics, including climate change and COVID. They then asked GPT-3 to generate 10 true tweets and 10 false ones, and collected a random sample of both true and false tweets from Twitter. You probably picked up on the same thing I did right away there. They were using GPT-3. What about GPT-4? Spitali believes that if they repeated the study with GPT-4, the effect would be even greater. That seems highly likely, given another recent study that showed that people were more likely to believe chat GPT answers to questions than ones written by humans on Stack Overflow, even when the chat GPT answers were blatantly wrong. Why? Because of the, quote, comprehensiveness and persuasive, articulate language style of ChatGPT's answers. Samir Kabir, one of the paper's authors, said, quote, Participants ignored the incorrectness when they found ChatGPT's answer to be insightful. The way ChatGPT confidently conveys insightful, even if incorrect, information gains user trust, which causes them to prefer the incorrect answer. It is apparent that polite language, articulated and textbook-style answers, comprehensiveness, and affiliation in answers make completely wrong answers seem correct. End quote. Oh, great. Well, it's hardly surprising. LLMs are exceptional at generating the most plausibly human kind of output by design. In fact, the early detectors, which have largely fallen by the wayside, worked by seeing whether the text contained any unusual text, text which was a little off, if you will, and then it would say that it was written by a human. Only if the text looked entirely likely to be human-generated would it say that it was written by AI. Unsurprisingly, this model for detecting AI didn't prove very reliable. And obviously those two studies go hand in hand because the Stack Overflow results show that if you produce a blatantly wrong answer, as long as it sounds plausible, people will prefer it to the truth, which is exactly what they were finding with the misinformation tweets. Next week, I'll be talking with Michael Sharp, the CEO of Magic ML an AI development environment creating the next generation of generative and autonomous agents, things that can take action. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.